You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. And I want to head to the Word this morning and spend our time seeking to understand what God has written in His Word. So we're in Romans chapter 2 if you want to head there. Romans chapter 2, we're in verse 12 this week. 12 through 16, you make your way there. Last week, I, I guess I left the hammer here. Uh, probably some more hammering today and as we go through, but uh, Marshall, where's Marshall at? Some, is Marshall here? Oh, I see point. Oh, there, Marshall, you're right there. Okay, it's like you stood up on cue. So this is Marshall's picture from last week. Uh, he caught the ladder illustration where somebody's high up on the ladder and they're saying, and the guy's saying, You're, you are way too high. And the, the guy's going, quit judging me. And uh, so we talked about that. And we talked about those who practice. You, you look at others, but then you, you, you practice the very same thing. So thanks for that picture, Marshall. Well, we want to take time to read God's Word first. Uh, originally, I had, I had thought longer today, but we've just kind of down to verses 12 through 16, and then we'll... We'll pick up on more towards the end of chapter 2 here next week, Lord willing. But for this morning, we're just going to work through these, these verses here. Let me start in verse 12 with God's word. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray once again. Lord, I just come before you right now as we gather to hear from your word. We're thankful once again of all the scriptures that you have written from Genesis to Revelation. They are all useful for our teaching. And in particular, Lord, you know providentially, here we are in verses 12 through 16 on on this this 3rd of April. And those that you have providentially gathered are here in this room today to hear this and maybe some watching online. Lord, I pray that you would work again by your Spirit in our hearts to give understanding How do we apply? What do we take away from this passage? How do we understand this passage so that we might know you and grow in our wisdom and knowledge of you? We want our aim, Lord, today. May you forgive us for times where we just want to know things. May the knowing lead to worship of our great God. That is who you are and your great salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would know you better, know this gospel better through these particular verses today. And I pray for your help to do that, asking in Jesus' name, amen. Well, apparently it's, it's called an alleyway. <laughs> uh, I was asking around yesterday uh, some, of the, 
some of the fellas trying to get my agricultural wording right. And uh, an alleyway, I don't know if you know an alleyway, but I, I tend to think, uh, when I'm thinking of this, what comes to mind is how you get cattle to where they need to go. Your, your, your cow, your heifer, whatever the, the name it, you've got to get it to the place where you're going to give the, this cattle medicine or whatever it is you're going to do, and you've got to figure out a way to get that beast to that place. And so this, I think the alleyway is the best description of this. Uh, and I remember this from, a, from a, a rancher down in Kansas who I was with one day that I, I think if I remember right, certain gates are closed off and you can only get that cattle into that place in that, that one particular place and you close the other gates. Otherwise, they're going wherever they want. So you get them, you prod, whatever it is, you get them kind of funneled into that one place. That's a long way of saying I think that's what Paul is doing as we walk through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. It, feel, it feels like there's just gates that Paul is saying, oh, you want to make, you know, you, you think you're good enough? That gate's closed. How about over here? You know, you practice the same thing. And the gates just keep closing and he's funneling us down by God's word, the inspiration of the spirit, funneling us to the hope of the cross and who Christ is. I hope you can see that as we work through this because it, it can feel like, you know, you know, week after week here, he just keeps talking about sin and wrath and fury and tribulation. And that's because the text does. We're just meditating on it. And it is good for us to be there. Not to remain there, but it is good to think on these things and on sin and on wrath that leads us to this glorious light, leads us to Christ. So I hope you can see these gates as Paul's closing off and call them gates of escape you know you can't get out that way you can't it's just all leading down to why do we need saving that's really the heart of it why do we need salvation and so hopefully it's not a torture i mean at the the moment right the the uh, pain with a purpose that idea maybe it's torturous for the moment it's kind of miserable that's there's a good kind of misery and if we're thinking rightly about our sin, that's a good kind of misery if it's leading us to the cross. And that's where Paul, I think, is the, the great, maybe I've heard him called lawyer, the, the, the argument going on here is leading us. So we want to look at this. So we're going to rejoin Paul here in verses 12 through 16, having looked at uh, 1 through 11 last week, as he's going to close off some gates. He's going to close them on the Gentiles and the Jews here. And uh, closing off those that might say, you know, I'm, I'm really okay. I'm okay after all. I guess I'm fine. So let's, let's look at verse 12 here to begin with. Verse 12 again says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All right, Paul has just mentioned, verse 11, For God shows no partiality. That's what he's just said. And it, it seems like, and I read commentary, he's, Carrying that thought through now to verse 12. Who, no partiality for who? And he's going to prove this point. It's, it's for all. You know, he's going to render the works, this sort of idea. And so verses 12 and 13, if you can see them this way, to me it's a picture of an, of an outline of sorts of what's going to come after it. So you've got 12 and 13, kind of this broad, if you had an outline, kind of point number one. And then 14 through 16 is going to talk about the Gentiles in the law. We're going to get to that today. And then next week will be 17 through, I think, 29, but maybe into chapter 3 as well. 
of the, the Jews. And so this week we're kind of on that outline and then into, into there. So there's, there's two groups. And, and you see that in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. There's group number one. That's the Gentiles. We're going to look at those today. And then there's those who have sinned under the law. They'll be judged. That's the Jews, and then, so that's next week. But what also makes this section unique, and you can go back and test this and look at it, make sure I'm, I'm right, but this, I find this is the first place Paul introduces three new terms to us that he has not used yet in this text. It's kind of hard to believe. Wait, he hasn't. The first one is sin. He's like, We've been talking about sin for a long time. We have. He's just not the word. Paul hasn't mentioned that particular word yet, but it comes up right now. What also comes up is law. So law is the first time we see it mentioned, and then the word justified in verse 13. And to me, I think that's, it's significant for us to notice this. He's mentioned the gospel. He's mentioned Jesus Christ. He's mentioned wrath, judgment, righteousness. And, and he has, without using the word sin, he's mentioned sins of the world and the heart of every man. But now we have these three, sin, law, justified. And I want to take a look at these terms and just where they land in these first couple verses here, kind of this, this more uh, bigger outline or overarching outline. The first word is sin. Let's just think on sin for just a moment here. We have been. Let's think on it again. One dictionary defines this word as, of sin, defines it this way, to act contrary to the will and law of God. To act, con- the, I like the word contrary, to the will and law of God. Synonyms might come to mind of sin. We think about transgression, um, lawlessness. In fact, that's how John defines sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says there, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then, it, and then he says, sin is lawlessness. There's a whose who's law? We're going to look at that, that new word in a minute here. What law? But this is, this is God's law. It's His commands. It's His statutes. So sin is doing whatever is contrary to God. So God says, you think positive, negative. God says, do this. The sinner does what's contrary. For example, God says, love your neighbor. The sinner says, I'd rather curse or hate my neighbor. It's, it's that. It's what's contrary. Flip it around. Maybe in the negative, that's the positive. God says, do this, do love. And we say, no, I'd rather, it's more fun to hate my neighbor at times. Flip it around. God says, don't do this. There's, there's a not to. Don't do this. Don't do something. And what does the sinner do? What's the contrary? God says, do not have any gods before me. The sinner says, I'd rather set my affections on something here. Some person, a thing, maybe an activity. That's going to bring me that satisfaction and that delight and that joy. And so they worship, as Paul pointed out in chapter 1. Maybe they worship creation instead of the creator. From young no matter how young you are and you're hearing this, no matter how old you are and you're hearing this, sinners are a contrary and a lawless people. Speaking of the law, that's the other term introduced here in verse 12. 
and, and from here on out, it's going to be it's 78 times, so 77 times after this, Paul is going to mention the law in Romans. We're going we're to hear this, this word over and over again as we go through Romans. In the proper sense, how do we understand law? Those who have sinned, okay, we've got a handle on maybe sin, contrary, but what's this without the law? What's Paul mean by the law? And these are, these are good questions. I believe Paul here is referring to the law. What's the law that we think of? The law written, remember, given to, uh, by God to Israel, Moses. Go back to Exodus, uh, Mount Sinai. We think of the Ten Commandments. Exodus, I always have to think ten. If you times it by two, you get twenty. So it's an Exodus twenty. If you divide Ten Commandments by two, you get five. So it's in Deuteronomy five. Those are the two places. That's the law. We think of the law. We think of that. These are God's commands to a unique and called out people. Commands. And, and these are to the Jews. So, so I think when this word is used, we, we always, when words are used, we're thinking of the context. How is the word used in context? But the reference point here is what's called the Mosaic Law. Paul's looking back at that Mosaic Law, and specifically, I think, the, the moral code of that law, what we often think of as the, the, the Ten Commandments. But in verse 12, here's what Paul, he makes a claim. He said, for all those who have sinned without the law, the Mosaic law. But he says they will perish. Now, we'll look at this in a bit. We're going to see this as we look at the Gentiles, but just think on this word perish for a moment. One definition has this of perish. means to incur the loss of true or eternal life. And then this phrase, to be delivered up to eternal misery. There's a statement. What does it mean to perish? Eternal misery. Maybe you're familiar with the word perish. It's one of the most famous verses. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We get that word perish. So who perishes? Those that have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Doug Moo writes this, commentator here. He says, The Scriptures frequently use this verb to depict the results of a negative verdict in the eschatological judgment. That's just a big word of scholars to say. The judgment in the end, in the end, this word, this idea of perishing, it's a negative verdict. I believe, I think what he's referring to there is perish. Um, even yesterday, Jeff, while well, we were with a youth group, we were talking about Psalm 1. You'll, and, you, and then as you read through, you'll see perish all over the place. Psalm 1 talks about, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but happen, what happens to the way of the wicked? You guys remember from yesterday? They will perish. The wicked will perish. There's this idea of perishing. Eternal misery, the way to think about that. And that's for those who have sinned without the law. What about those who have the law? What about the Jew here? Paul explains they are going to be judged by the law. So in essence, what he's doing is no matter where, no matter where you're at, where you stand, you stand condemned. You sin, we want to say, well, I'm sinning without the law. I don't have the law. You're going to perish. Well, we have the law. Well, sinning with the law brings judgment. And so Doug Moo concludes this and he says, Paul would exempt no one from the verdict here he imposes. It is clear from these verses that Paul argues for universal human sinfulness and a sinfulness of such a nature 
that condemnation must be the outcome. You see the flattening out? There's not this person, that person. No matter what, there is sin. And, and, and you, you get an idea here of what's going on of this courtroom setting. And that's kind of a good picture of these, these verdicts being laid down. In verse 13 then, Paul digs in further. And he says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So in contrast to the sinners of verse 12, now the question in verse 13, though it's not stated as a question, it seeks to answer this, well, who's righteous then? The sinners perish, the sinners are judged. What about the righteous? Who is righteous? And one definition of this righteous, you know, this, these these ones who, who are not hearers of the law, who are righteous before God, one definition of that is conforming, and you won't be surprised at this, conforming, what's righteousness? Conforming to the standard will or character of God. It's the opposite of sin. What's contrary, in righteousness, there's a conforming to this standard, this character of God. In other words, upright or good or just, proper or in a right relationship with God or acceptable to God. Those are the righteous before God. So there's sinners, verse 12, and then there's the righteous, verse 13. And what is God's standard? It's the law. That's the standard. I don't think Paul's point, it's not, it's not hard to see here. What he's saying is simply hearing the law will not do. It's not the same as doing the law. Being able to recite the Ten Commandments and not miss any of them, that's not doing them. That's just reciting them. If I can tell you where they're found, that's not doing them. That's just knowing where they are. Hearing the law does not equal righteousness. Doing does. The doers of the law are those who will be justified. And there's our third word, justified. It's Again, there's a legal sense of being um, I think from some resource, pronounced righteous. Think of a courtroom setting. Or one definition in, uh, likens it to an affirmative verdict. The verdict is in, this one is justified to be, I think of declared, pronounced righteous. Again, Doug Moo says this. It connotes the judicial decision of God. Here's the courtroom again. To regard a sinner as just or right or innocent before him. One stands before this righteous judge and they stand either just and right or guilty and condemned and charged. All men. This is, this is Jew, Greek, American, European, Asian, whatever. All men stand before the judge of the universe. But wait, you say, and I say, Paul says this in Galatians 2.16 and elsewhere we'll get to. He says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So what's, is Paul kind of schizophrenic and he's just he's one, one way one day and then he woke up the next day. And So here he says the doers of the law will be justified. And then another place says, no, no, by works of the law, you're not, no one's going to be justified. And so we've got these opposites. How, how do we think about this contradiction? And for instance, even in the next chapter by, um, where is it, verse 20, 
Paul will say the same thing. You don't even have to go to Galatians. Just in 3.20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How do we understand this? I would submit here in verse 13, Paul's in the courtroom in the middle of making an argument, a strong one. A fact we, I think we need to keep in mind as we walk towards these gates and in this alleyway towards our great sinfulness and Christ's great redemption of sinners is to keep that in mind. He's, he's hammering home, if you will, you cannot do what is needed to be justified. You thought you could, th- no. You got the law, no. You don't have the law, no. No, no, you are funneled into no one does good. We're going to see that in chapter 3. So remember the standard. What's the standard? God's law. Standard isn't how many sermons you have heard. At least for Paul's argument here. The judgment is according to what has been done. There's a high bar for justification. A high, 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 perfect bar. This is not God reducing His standards. Well, it's it's okay. It's the law. The one who does the law will be justified. And for the one who has not, who has done contrary, the courtroom is silent and the judgment is in. But now we turn and we, and we want to ask, what about the Gentiles? What about these that have not the, the law? So I'm using the law like a capital L, like the Mosaic. Well, they don't, it wasn't written per se to them. What about them? They, were, they weren't given this law. Are they exempt and Man, Gentiles, I wish I was born a Gentile. They go free. There's no, no, Paul's saying that they're going to perish. We've already seen that. And so enters these verses 14 through 16. I'll be a little briefer as we look through just these, these verses here. Uh, let's start at verse 14. And he says this, For when Gentiles who, dot, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So here's entering these Gentiles. Another, another way to think of Gentiles is nations, the word nations. Uh, really those who are not Jews. It's a struggle. Sometimes Paul, he's just been using Jews and Greeks. That's kind of his... And now he switches to Jews and Gentiles. And I think in some ways it's, it's, they're interchangeable. But maybe here Paul is contrasting the nations, that, that, that's those outside Judaism with the Jew in particular. and Maybe that's why he's using the word Gentile here. The plain fact is that the Gentiles, from this verse, they don't have the law. They don't have the law like the Jews, and yet, by nature, by nature they do what the law requires, and so they have a, a law. It's a law to themselves. One might, we might think, you know, without the law, they're, they're excused. It's okay. No, they've got a law, the natural that has come on them, become a law to themselves. This is how you think of remote tribes. What about the remote tribe on some island or some jungle faraway place and they've never, never heard the gospel? What about them? Is God kind of, well, I know they, there's a law on the heart. Are they accountable before God? The answer solidly is yes, all men are. Verses 15 through 16 show this law is thus, it's written on the heart. 
All right, let's look at those verses again. 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So these Gentiles, who do, they don't have Moses, they don't have Mount Sinai, they don't have the giving of the, the proper law, they still have it written in the heart. Paul calls it the conscience. In the, in the English, you can break down that word. The con is the, the with idea, and then the, the science, the, at least used to be science, knowledge. So this idea of there's with knowledge. They have a with knowledge. Practically, we think of conscience, we think of that, and I think this was some resource, but you just think of it, it's that inner sense, that inner idea, this is right, this is wrong. There's a sense of that. Kevin DeYoung describes it in part as what, quote, keeps us up at night. It gives us a pit in our stomach. These are just, you know, things that describe that, that conscience. You think of a guilty conscience. Or other places, you know, Scripture, the, the weak conscience. That, it reminds us, he says, it reminds us of our offenses against God. Even the remote tribe or the supposed, as I read somewhere, the supposed atheist, there's the work of the law is written on the heart. Now, we can talk, you can try to sort out, is it stuffed down? It's defiled? Maybe it's conflicted here, as we see in Paul. Maybe it's seared. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about a searing, and I'll just, I'll just be honest, that, that text is not super clear to me. How does the searing work and, and all that? You can, you can work on that, chew on that. But bringing us back here in our text to the context, what context are we in? This is Paul closing off the gates of excuse, closing those off. The Gentiles here cannot say, we didn't have the law, no perishing for us, we didn't have it. He's saying, no, you had it. This work, it's written on the heart. You too will face judgment. And so verse 16 describes this coming day of judgment. Once again, where? where the secrets of men will be judged by Christ Jesus. I think Paul's alluding here, and I think we brought this up last week, the very last verse of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 14. It says there in Ecclesiastes, Old Testament, says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, not just what we all see, but it says, with every secret thing whether good or evil. Secret things. The secrets of men in our, in our passage. John MacArthur describes these secrets as primarily, he says, the motives that lie behind men's actions. We talked about some of that in Sunday school. Our actions. I'm going to go do this, I'll do this. Maybe even to the outside world, those actions just look fine and they look good. Oh, they, what a nice person. But inside, the secret things, that's, that's, what's the motive for that? We just go, yeah, not so good at times. Maybe likely more often than we think. So who can stand before this judgment when everything is exposed? Nothing's going to be hidden before Jesus Christ on His throne. The books are opened and the, 
and the dead are judged, Revelation 20, according to what they had done. And so thus being judged, they are thrown into this eternal lake of fire as it's described. And men may seek to excuse themselves on this day of wrath. Maybe that's the meaning here, the accuse or even excuse them, this conscience. But as Paul says, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 20, they're, they're without excuse. They know. They know. I want to close here just by looking at one phrase in verse 16 that, as you read it, might kind of be like, well, that seems a bit out of place. And it's this phrase where Paul writes, he says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul says, according to my gospel. And we go, we might ask, how is it that in the same sentence here, gospel is used with judgment? Isn't the gospel the message of God's, God's love to sinners and Jesus dying on the cross? That's the gospel. How can Paul be in this, this gloom of sin and no law and yet having the law and the doers of the law and all this and still go, this is according to a gospel? But Paul, the question Paul seems to be answering here is why? Maybe there's other ways to say it, but why do we need saving? This is a gospel question because the gospel to be good news or the power of God for salvation must refer to some bad news or something we need power to be saved from. And we've already seen that. Certain judgment or wrath or fury or tribulation or distress. So Leon Morris helps kind of tie these together. He says, the connection of judgment with the gospel should not be overlooked. We are apt to set the two in opposition to one another and to think that the one excludes the other. But the gospel does not preclude the thought of judgment. Indeed, it demands it. Unless judgment is a stern reality, there is nothing from which sinners need to be saved. And accordingly, no good news. There's no gospel. If God just, he just loves everybody and we're all going to heaven, there's, what, there's no judgment. What are we saved from? That's Paul. He's taking us to the, at least an aspect of the heart of the gospel, our sure condemnation. You sin without the law, you sin with the law, you're condemned. And the, God, the gospel says God's going to judge the secret motives that nobody else sees. He's going to look on the heart and he's going to see what maybe we wish others wouldn't. And next week, we're going to look further. We're going to look at this Jewish aspect of the law workout. What's it mean? They're breaking the law. But again, yeah, I've probably mentioned it too many times. We are working. Paul is working the reader towards the good news, but he's working us through the, the bad news, as it were, leading us to Romans 3.21. Cutting off gates, cutting off excuses, reasons for how we can be righteous without Christ. And we are left speechless without any righteousness of our own. Someone might say, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Paul says, you practice the same things. Or today, the Gentile says, the law wasn't written to me, I'm out of it. Paul says, no, it, it's, it's actually written on your heart. What does your conscience say to you? 
what do you think or do in secret when nobody's around? Or in the courtroom of God, if you think of the courtroom setting, how will you be found when the judge gives that verdict? Can you honestly make a defense before this righteous judge and say, I have done the law. I've done the standard. I've never been contrary. Have you fully obeyed? Or will you, like me, be found, thou Christ, to have done what is contrary to God? Another question for you then further is, does this give you misery? Are you miserable with that thought? Are your sins before you? And you recognize then God is righteous. He is just to judge you for you've not done what is right. Is there misery? Oh, sinner, praise God for that kind of misery. That's a good misery. Because God is giving you a sense of your sin that by His grace you might see your need for Him. And we need to see that. We need eyes open to see our need the same one. Here's the amazing fact, and we're going to celebrate in a minute and, and be revived as we remember the other part of the gospel, the connected part of this gospel. But the same one who will judge men's secrets, he is the one who has bore the penalty for sin on the cross of all who would come to him by faith. And so really the call, are you miserable? Are you, you say, I am a wretched sinner. I cannot stand before this God. Then fly to Jesus. And that's, may that be where our hearts are going. And if you've, you've come to Jesus, early age, whatever, we're prone to just speak this way, continue. Our life is one of continually repenting. And Paul Washer talks about this, continually repenting to the Lord. Not to be saved over and over, but it's our lifestyle of saying, you are righteous, Lord, and I'm a sinner but by your grace. Let me pray for us. Father, maybe this can seem long as we walk through these certain passages where sin just continues to come and Paul continues to, to rightly put up arguments to, to our hearts because we're so easily deceived in our heart. And I think well, we're not that bad. M- maybe somehow we don't need Jesus. Oh Lord, would you take our hearts And reveal to us, Lord, our miserable condition apart from Christ. Show us that. And Lord, for those you have shown that and you have revealed Christ, may we then be in glorious praise of what you have done and your grace to sinners who in the courtroom are rightly judged guilty, condemned, contrary. But by your grace in Christ, are redeemed, declared righteous. And may those thoughts, may our convictions lead us to worship and glory in Christ Jesus alone. We pray. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.